I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke. We begin again in Luke's gospel in chapter 3, picking up where we left off the last time. And so we come back into this gospel, looking at this call of, of John the Baptist, bringing John the Baptist onto the stage of world history, bringing him into the life of Israel to bring Jesus into the life of Israel. This is God's holy an inerrant word. Luke chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 6. Luke writes, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray one more time and ask him to help us as we study his word. Lord, we are absolutely dependent upon your spirit, not only to understand this word, but even more to live in the light of it. So would you come and by your power and by your grace, would you accomplish all those purposes for which you have sent this word, for which the Spirit has inspired this story? And Lord, you have brought us, each one of us, here in your providence to this room this morning. And so we ask that you would glorify your name in and through us. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. There were 135,000 Midianites camped in the Valley of Jezreel. And there were 32,000 Israelites on Mount Gilead under Gideon's command. But 32,000 in God's mind was too many. And so God tells Gideon, you know the story, to send home all of those who are afraid. And 22,000, right, 22,000 return home. So all Gideon is left with is 10,000 soldiers, right? but that's still too many. Still too many. And so God has Gideon perform a drinking test. You remember everyone who kneeled to drink water uh, was sent home. And everyone who lapped water like a dog who brought his hands to his mouth will retain to fight. And how many were left? There were 300. 300 left in Gideon's army. Now the Bible doesn't tell us. But don't you wonder, haven't you wondered if, if those uh, 10,000 who were, were sent home, right, the, all the rest sent home, who weren't afraid to fight, remember? Like they weren't the ones who were afraid to fight. They were ready to fight. They wanted to fight. Do you wonder what they were thinking? And, and perhaps, you know, some of them were, were walking away. Good luck beating the 30, you know, 135,000 Midianites with these 300 people. Right? We would have fought. We're not afraid. Good luck. What a, what a foolish choice you're making, Gideon, to do it in this way. But of course, God's ways often seem foolish to men. How can 300 people defeat an army of 135,000? And yet they did. 
and God received the glory. Now, as we come to our text this morning in Luke chapter three, Luke is beginning to narrate the public ministry of Jesus, but he starts with the appearing of John. John, who was the forerunner, the advance team, the PA announcer, right, declaring Jesus's entry into the ring. Luke begins here with John, and in these verses, Luke shows us the foolishness, quote unquote, of God's ways. The foolishness of God's ways. He does it in at least three different areas. First, in the recipient of God's word. Second, in the fulfillment of God's word. And third, in the demand of God's word. Let's look at these three foolish ways of God together this morning. First, the recipient of God's word. Luke begins this narration of John's ministry by setting it in the context of world history. You remember, perhaps from the beginning of Luke's gospel, he is a, a historian who desires to be accurate, who desires to be detailed. And so he dates John's ministry very specifically. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor. Uh, Tiberius Caesar reigned after Caesar Augustus. Uh, he reigned from 14 to 37 AD. And so depending on uh, how the years are counted, John is appearing somewhere between 27 and, and 29 AD. Uh, there are other big names that, John, uh, that Luke mentions for us. He speaks of Pontius Pilate, who was in charge of collecting taxes and keeping the peace there in Judea and Samaria. Uh, he speaks of Herod and Philip. These were the, the sons of, of Herod the Great, the Herod that the wise men came to back in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, the, this Herod uh, is the Herod that you'll see throughout the, the Gospels and, and throughout the book of Acts. Uh, he also mentioned some of the re religious leadership, Annas and Caiaphas. The Romans had actually deposed Annas around 15 AD from being the high priest, uh, but his son-in-law Caiaphas had been put in his place. And, and so maybe as you can imagine, the, the father-in-law still had some, some uh, authority and some influence in, in the high priesthood. And so both names are mentioned uh, by Luke. So here is Luke. He, he's grounding uh, John and Jesus's ministry in actual history. He's also reminding us of, of the dark and the desperate conditions into which John and Jesus came. The people of God are under pagan rule. Uh, these rulers are cruel and, and, and merciless. They're morally degenerate. Uh, and politically and religiously, it's a chaotic time. So Luke is trying to, to, to remind us of what's going on in that day and age. But here's the, the main point that I don't want you to miss. The word of God, says Luke, did not come to any of these powerful figures, any of these rulers, but came to this random guy far away from the sinners of power. If Luke were writing today, he might put it like this. When Joe Biden was president of the United States and Vladimir Putin ruled in Russia and Charles III reigned over England and Tate Reeves was the governor of Mississippi and Caleb Carl and Dean were the pastors of Pear Orchard, the word of God came to Fred Smith in hot coffee, Mississippi. Right? Like, that's what Luke is saying to us here and how foolish it is. How foolish it seems that, that God would give his word to someone so weak, so uninfluential, so unpowerful, so little and repugnant in the eyes of the world. I mean, have you seen how this guy dresses? Right? John, he, 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 he wears camel hair and a leather belt. He eats locusts and honey. Wouldn't it be much more wise to, to bring the word to those who are the most influential, who live in the biggest cities, 
who would be the, the, the best able to bring the word to the most number of people, who could actually do some good. And yet God says that everyone must listen to the word that he speaks through this man, John, in the desert, in the wilderness. And of course, God has always been in the business of choosing and of using people who don't make a lot of sense to other people and sometimes not even to themselves. Think of Amos. He was a shepherd. He was a, a fig picker. And yet God called him to be a prophet. Think of Gideon, right? a fearful man, a fearful farmer, turns into a mighty warrior. Think of Moses, a poor speaker by his own admission. And yet God uses him to be the deliverer, the covenant mediator to rescue his people from Egypt. God works in this way so that no man might boast before him, but that he might get the glory. You see, that's the explicit reason that God gives in the book of Judges as to why he sent all those soldiers home and left Gideon with only 300. He says, because if I allow you with 32,000 to win the victory over Midian, if I give Midian into your hand, even 32,000 against 135,000, then you will boast in your own strength. You will say, look at what we have done. Look at what our hand has done. We have won the victory. God is in the business, the foolish business to the eyes of man, of bringing his word, of using those who everyone else would think there's no way. Why would God do it in this way? And this principle applies, doesn't it, even to our salvation. As we'll confess in the 11 o'clock service, you see the words there in your bulletin from 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God has chosen what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. He, God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. John would have agreed with what Paul wrote. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay, so that the surpassing greatness of the power might be of God and not of ourselves. Can you say that this morning? Do you rejoice in the fact that God chooses and uses foolish and, and weak and base and despised things to accomplish his good purposes? You don't have to be powerful or famous or influential to be used of God. He delights to use people with no clout, no prestige, no name, to accomplish his purposes. Many of you heard, as Dean alluded to in his prayer this past week, we lost two giants in the PCA, Harry Reeder and Tim Keller, went to be with the Lord. They were both incredibly gifted preachers. They were amazing pastors. They were incredible visionaries, uh, both on the local level as well as uh, the national level and even the international level. Uh, they had photographic memories, both of them. Earl and I were talking about this uh, this week. Uh, Photographic memories, incredibly gifted men, hugely influential in church planning, in church revitalization, as well as the culture in which God had placed them. Harry Reeder in Birmingham, Tim Keller in New York City. And yet what Luke is reminding you is you don't have to be Harry Reeder. You don't have to be Tim Keller to be used of God. And if Harry and Tim were here this morning, they would say, yeah, we weren't Harry Reeder and Tim Keller either. You know, Harry Reeder's a pastor in Miami, Florida, Tim Keller in Hobo, Virginia. They were just normal pastors. And yet God chose to use them in amazing ways 
God is going to use his people, you, when you least expect it. Are you ready to be used by God? The foolish ways of God call us to serve him, no matter what we might think about ourselves, no matter what others might think about us. So that's the first way we see the foolishness of God here in this text. But the second is in the fulfillment of God's word, not just the recipient of God's word, but the fulfillment of God's word. Luke tells us here in verse three that that John went to all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then he tells us that John's ministry was a fulfillment of the words of Isaiah the prophet. You see it there. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now we see God's foolishness and the fulfillment of his word in, in a couple ways. First, in the mere idea that Isaiah foretold Jesus' appearance some 750 years, or John's appearance, some 750 years before he actually came. Now, if you've grown up in the church, then this idea, this notion of, of prophecies being fulfilled, right, of things spoken hundreds and hundreds of years ago actually coming to pass, you just take that for granted. Right? You don't think twice. But if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, or if you're here this morning and, and you didn't grow up in the church, or even if you, maybe you grew up in the church, but you're starting to, to, to reject the things that you heard as a child, then this is one of those sticky points. This is one of those things you say, this is ridiculous. It's crazy, right, that, that Isaiah, some 750 years, would be prophesying of John, and that, that, that he could do that, that he could look ahead and say, here's what's going to happen hundreds and hundreds of years down the future, down in the road. And yet it is true. It is true. And, and in fact, it's one of the most impressive arguments for the truthfulness of Christianity. Now, yes, Isaiah was first referring and prophesying of a return from the Babylonian exile. But, but beyond that, Isaiah saw that there was a more ultimate return, a return from exile, humanity's exile and sin and a return to the salvation that God would accomplish through his son, Jesus Christ, whom John was going before. You see, John's ministry was all about bringing that salvation in. God had been silent for some 400 years since Malachi prophesied. God had been silent. He had not spoken to his people. And now again, the word of God is coming to his people. God is speaking in time and space and history for the good of his people. As C.S. Lewis would put it, Aslan is on the move once more. Luke here is quoting Isaiah chapter 40, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. He's quoting that because John has come to proclaim that salvation has arrived in Jesus Christ who's about to enter onto the stage of human history through John's ministry. God is about to accomplish the salvation of his people consisting in the forgiveness of their sins through Jesus Christ, through his life and his death and his resurrection. So this foretelling of the future is foolish in the eyes of the world. And yet it is the most beautiful truth that as we meditate upon it, we see how God works in such an amazing way. But there's another way that this fulfillment of God's word is foolish. And it's this, in, it's foolish in how 
John fulfills Isaiah's word. Isaiah says that John came as a voice crying in the wilderness. John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John came preaching. How foolish. How foolish to think that that preaching and speaking in a monologue about the heinousness of sin, about the people's need for repentance and cleansing, about the offer of God's forgiveness pictured in the washing of water. How foolish to think that just being a herald and declaring the good news to those in a desperate condition would do any good at all. And yet, God has used the spoken word all through history as the vehicle by which he brings salvation. Why would God do it this way? Why would God's ordained means of salvation be one person speaking to other people, particularly in a culture like our own that is so image and and visually oriented, so much focus on videos and, and pictures, even in spite of the last decade and, and sort of the TED talk, right? Which is sort of this sort of secular sermon of sorts. Yet even so, right, it, it is hard for our world, our culture to believe that, that one man engaging in a monologue for 30 minutes or even 15 minutes right, could somehow be life-changing. And yet that is how God sent John into the world. To, to, to the unbelieving culture, perhaps some of you even here this day, preaching, what's going on right now is sort of like when you're on a cell phone call with someone and, and all of a sudden the call drops on their end and you don't realize it. And you're just talking and talking and talking. And all of a sudden you realize like, I don't hear anything and they haven't responded to anything I've said the last five minutes. And people say, well, that's, that's what this is like. That's what preaching is like. You're just talking and talking and talking and it's pointless. No one's listening. No one cares. Right? It's just going in one ear and out the other. And yet, it is the way that God has ordained salvation to come. Now, as we'll see next week, John didn't merely speak to the people. He also spoke with the people. Right? He didn't merely engage in monologue, but also dialogue. But the dialogue arose out of the monologue, right? out of his authoritative proclamation of God's truth. Because God has always brought salvation He's always accomplished his will via the preached word. This is his foolish ways. Perhaps you've seen churches in your lifetime that have seen the need to replace or to supplement the sermon with with drama, with skits, with videos, because that seems to speak so much more clearly to our culture. And yet the first century, The first century, the world of of, of the Greco-Roman universe into which John has come, it was full of drama, full of theatrical performances. And yet, God sent John and Jesus and the apostles and the early Christians into that world, not to put on skits, not to put on dramas, but to preach, to speak the truth of the gospel. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. This is how 
God works. It's foolish, yes, but it's how he works. Our, our Westminster Larger Catechism beautifully puts this emphasis and captures it upon, upon preaching. In the question number 155, they ask this, how is the word made effectual to salvation? And they write this, the spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word. An effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to his image, and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. What a beautiful summary of, of the purpose of preaching, of the, of the effect of preaching. And yet it can be so tempting, can it, to be like, eh, preaching, you've heard one sermon, you've heard them all, right? You've been to the Lord's Day in the morning, why go back in the evening? You've been to one church, you know, ah, let's, let's just, it's, just, it's just preaching. You know, I, I, can, I can watch or listen to it somewhere else. And yet God has said, preaching is the means by which I accomplish my purposes. So what's your view of preaching? Does it seem foolish to you to come and hear God's word proclaim morning and even morning or evening? Does it seem like nothing happens in your life or in the lives of others here in the pews? Does it seem like unbelievers are not converted, like the saints don't grow? Perhaps. Perhaps that is what happens. And yet we have this promise of God in Isaiah chapter 55 that every time his word is opened, this promise stands true. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, void, pointless, without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And so if you look around and you see, I don't see the effect of preaching in my life. I don't see the effect of preaching in the lives of others. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Let us plead the promises of God that the Holy Spirit would come down and fill both the preacher and those who hear, that he would work through his word he must accompany the preaching of his word, or this is a waste of time, right? This is a waste of your time, a waste of my time. But if his spirit is at work, right, then we are not wasting time. God is at work. God is moving and bringing his salvation through the proclamation of his word, even as he did through John. May we always have here at Pear Orchard a high view of the preaching of the word of God, a high view of the pulpit, and a zeal to pray for the word of God to bear much fruit. Well, finally, we see the foolishness of God, not just in the recipient of his word and the fulfillment of his word, but finally the demand of his word. And what is that demand? Well, you see it there in verse three, that John came and he said, you must repent and you must be baptized. What does this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins mean? Well, I think J.C. Ryle puts it best. He, he writes, the plain meaning of this expression is that John preached the necessity of being baptized as a sign of repentance. And he told his hearers that in, unless they repented of sin, their sins would not be forgiven. John was essentially an Old Testament prophet, right? He was sort of that transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And like the Old Testament prophets, John came and declared to God's people that they were sinners and that they needed to turn from their sin. And, and as an outward sign, of their repentance, they were to be washed with water. 
A baptism of repentance means a, a baptism produced by, characterized by repentance. And so as they came to John for baptism out in the wilderness, they were confessing that they needed cleansing, that they needed their sins to be forgiven. Now, it's important that you realize that John's baptism was not Christian baptism. Right? We see that in the book of Acts when, when Paul happens upon some, some believers who had only been baptized by John. They had only received John's baptism. And, and so he says, well, you, you're, you're, you haven't received Christian baptism yet. Right? You need to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So just as Isaiah had foretold, John's ministry was a ministry of, of preparing the way for Jesus who was to come, preparing the people spiritually for the coming of their king, pointing continually to Jesus. John came to arouse in the people a spirit of repentance, of expectation, and so to smooth the way for Jesus' entry, to, to prepare their hearts, to plow up the hard soil of the hearts of the people of God. Just like you as a, a little gardener there in your backyard, or maybe a big gardener on a farm you have, you have to, to plow the soil, you have to till the soil in order to plant your seeds so that it might bear much fruit. Here, the people of God need a much bigger view of their sin than they have, so that when Jesus does show up as the Savior of sinners, they would be ready to receive his word. Jesus comes as the Savior, but until you think you need a Savior, what's the use? What's the point? Until you know how bad your sin is, of course you're not going to think you need someone to save you from your sin. And so here, submitting to John's baptism was supposed to signify that a person understood that they had a, they'd had a change of mind right, about themselves, about their sin, about God. They had turned and they would continue to turn from their sin. They were hungry. They were desirous for the, the Savior that God had promised so long ago in Genesis and to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to all the prophets. Finally, that Messiah, that Christ was coming. So, so where is the foolishness here? Where's the foolishness in this demand of God's word to be baptized as a sign of your repentance? Well, it's here. You see, in this day, there were ceremonial washings that would happen. In fact, one of the ones that was most prevalent was that Gentile converts to Judaism would be washed, would be cleansed with water. But yet look at what John is doing. John is coming not to Gentile pagan converts, but to Jews, to the people of God. And he is saying, you, Abraham's descendants, you need to be washed. You need to be baptized. You need to be cleansed. This is shocking. This would have offended and did offend so many. The Pharisees refused to come, refused to accept this, this idea that they needed cleansing. John is saying the same thing that we saw Paul say in Romans chapter 9. Not all Israel is Israel. Don't think that your forgiveness is guaranteed just because you're Abraham's offspring. It doesn't matter who your daddy is. It doesn't matter who your mama is. It doesn't matter if you've grown up in the church. If you don't repent, you will perish under God's righteous judgment of sinners. That was John's message. And so the Pharisees rejected it. This is foolishness. But as we'll see next week, others didn't reject the baptism, but they did reject the repentance that baptism symbolized. Because is it really necessary to leave sin? I mean, that sounds kind of foolish too, John. Repent. I love my sin. I, I want to keep doing this. Why would God not let me do what I want to do 
And then just forgive it after it's been done. All right. That seems to make a lot more sense. Why can I not be forgiven unless I forsake my sin? Isn't that God's job to forgive? How foolish is God's demand for repentance? Now, let's be clear here. Repentance doesn't atone for sin, does it? Repentance isn't meritorious. It's not praiseworthy of itself. It doesn't justify us in God's sight. We don't earn our salvation by repentance. It's not what we plead on the day of judgment. Only faith in Jesus Christ, only faith in the one to whom John pointed is what we plead will save us from God's wrath. But without repentance, there is no saving faith. Faith and repentance always go together. Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus said. Saving faith is always repentant faith. A saved soul is always a penitent soul. And not just at the entrance of the Christian life, but throughout the Christian life. We're always called to have a a broken and a contrite heart, to have a a spirit that that is growing in our hatred of sin, that recognizes that what we're doing, it's not just that it it hurts us and hurts other people, but that it is displeasing to God. And so we mourn it, we abhor it, we, we forsake it. So this morning, as you hear the demand of God's word, a demand that was for a particular time, and yet a demand that, that overlapped into the new covenant. Repent and believe. Believe and repent. Turn from sin and turn to Jesus. How do you live? What is your view of repentance? Do you seek to, to forsake your sin because you hate it, because it is displeasing to God? Or do you rather feed your lust and allow them to spread throughout your heart and your life? Grace is not given to allow us to keep living as we've already and always lived. That's cheap grace. That's not saving grace. God calls us to repent, to turn from sin. He calls us now as believers in Jesus Christ who from outside the covenant community to still be baptized with Christian baptism. He calls us to remember that we need cleansing. The demands of God are foolish in the eyes of the world. So what do we do? We are called by God, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4, to be fools for Christ's sake. To submit to the foolish demand of the foolish preaching of the word of God by the foolish messengers and recipients of God's word. And if we do, then this salvation that has come through Jesus Christ, that has appeared, will grant to us forgiveness of sins as we trust in the Lord Jesus that we might be saved. So this morning, I invite you, I command you, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Turn from sin. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though your ways are foolish in our eyes, They are always right. They're always the best. They're always wise and powerful and good. Lord, help us, we pray, to submit to your ways, even when they don't make sense to us. Lord, would you grant repentance? Would you grant us to love your word? Lord, would you use us as those who would bring your word to the lost? Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified This day we pray in Jesus' name, amen.